0: Thanks for tuning into the Health Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Richie Kerman, and today I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Kirk English. Kirk is an assistant professor at the University of Houston, Clear Lake, and the director of experimental research at the Health and Human Performance Institute. Prior to that, he was an exercise physiologist and senior scientist at NASA Johnson Space Center, where he continues to collaborate and consult. Uh, Kirk's research looks at nutrition and exercise interventions to protect skeletal muscle metabolism, mass, strength, function, and performance during spaceflight. I came across Kirk's research profile pretty randomly while researching for a review paper of my own. Uh, I needed to get in contact with him uh, to get permission to adapt a graph from one of his papers, and then I became aware of all the incredible research that he's doing regarding spaceflight, and I knew Straight away that I wanted to speak with him on the podcast and I'm so glad he agreed. Not only is he one of the friendliest and most town to earth researchers I've ever had the pleasure of speaking with, but this was just such a cool topic to speak and to learn about. And I really hope you enjoy this episode and even learn something from it because I know I learned a load from Kirk and If you do, I'd love it if you left a rating or a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use. And if you're listening on YouTube, consider hitting the like button and subscribing for more great podcasts. And if you can, please share and spread news of the podcast on Facebook or Instagram, Twitter, or even LinkedIn. Not only do I massively appreciate it, but it helps promote the podcast to more people, which really encourages other guests to come and speak. And that means I can get even more great content out to you. And on a final note, if you know someone who you think might be interested in this podcast, maybe even just a Star Trek fan, please let them know about it and maybe it can be of some useful. So onto this conversation with Kirk. Let's talk science. Kirk, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing very well. Glad to be here with you.
0: Absolutely delighted to have you here today. Um, I'm really, really excited uh, about this chat because I think it's a a topic that is, it's not something that's spoken about very, very often in, let's say, fitness and nutrition circles, but, um, I still think it's something quite interesting. A lot of people are going to, to like it. Um, just for anybody who might not be familiar with you or your work, could you give us, um, a little bit of an introduction, just who you are and tell us a little bit about what you do and how you got into, um, exercise and nutrition research?
1: Sure. So, Probably like a lot of exercise physiologists my my original introduction to the field was was from sport playing myself uh, play basketball was my primary sport and I I loved it um and as I got into into college and university I was uncertain as to what I wanted to major in um took some undergraduate science classes became very fascinated with science and along the way I became aware that there was such a thing as Is exercise science or sports science. And I realized, wow, this is perfect. I can combine my two, um, my two passions, which science and sport, um, together. So I did an undergraduate in, in exercise physiology and then a master's and ultimately ended up getting a PhD in my PhD specifically is in nutrition and metabolism. So, so that was, that was how I started was just the interest in using, using science. To, uh, to improve performance initially for myself and and then for other other athletes and and now i 've kind of segued into uh, an expanded focus on on aging and and health, uh, so getting beyond uh, just optimizing performance but also optimizing health
0: fantastic I, I think a lot of people who are in in this particular field of academia get into it in this in the same way so we all start out as uh, so for for a lot of people in sports science, I find we have a lot of athletes and then for a lot of people in nutrition, we have a lot of athletes there as well. Uh, a lot of people who may have struggled with obesity yep. earlier on in, the, in their life as well. Um, and I think it's very, very cool to have people who have that perspective because it's, it's almost a, a practitioner slash researcher, uh, perspective, mm-hmm. which I think is, is fantastic. And it really, really contributes to the kind of evidence and the kind of work that you get out of people. Um, I agree. So that's, you, you, I think you've given us a modest version of what you, how you got into what you do. Could you tell us a little bit about your career path? Um,
1: Sure. uh, Please. Sure. So right about the time, I I was born and raised here in Houston, Texas. So um, I'm foreshadowing my first major job, um, but living here, growing up and living here in Houston, Texas, um, Johnson Space Center, NASA's Johnson Space Center, which is home of, of mission control. Is you know ten minutes from my house, and so it was very normal for for school children when I was growing up. You you every few years you'd have a field trip to Johnson Space Center. Um, the local news always had you know launches of and and my growing up years it was the space shuttle you know in the 80s and 90s and and early 2000s. Um, so in a funny way, NASA was just very normal to me. I, I knew people who worked there. I knew you know people whose parents worked there and qu- quite frankly it it never held any special fascination for me um it, it was cool i i enjoyed visiting there but but i was never um one of these people who grew up i always wanted to be an astronaut or i've always wanted to work at nasa that that just wasn't me but um as i as i mentioned earlier um enjoying loving sports and then falling in love with science um i knew I wanted to and and began to to work in the exercise science field, and I became aware that NASA at Johnson Space Center had um, what's called the Exercise Physiology Lab, and the the primary role, I guess you'd say, of that lab is to um, conduct research um, and, and develop exercise, we call them exercise countermeasures, in order to protect astronauts um, cardiovascular, musculoskeletal, neurologic um, capacity during spaceflight. Uh, may, maybe step back one little bit. Hopefully, everyone's you know aware that when you spend um, even brief periods, but certainly prolonged periods of time um, in zero gravity or microgravity of space, you you degrade and you 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 lose in all those systems. You know the, the heart shrinks, muscles atrophy. You lose neurologic, um, uh, capabilities. And so that was recognized many, many, many decades ago with early space flights. So, um, I think very uh, intuitively it was recognized that, hey, exercise can be a very potent, um, countermeasure to those, to those losses. So NASA has this, this lab, exercise physiology laboratory. And I became aware that it existed. I was in my, uh, let's see. I guess I was in my mid twenties at the time and, um, all of a sudden that caught my attention as that would be a really, really cool place to work. Um, in, in terms of being a unique application of exercise science, N- no, they're not athletes, but it's certainly in what, what we call an operational, um, environment where, you know, your research and the application of that research becomes you know, very real on a day-to-day basis in terms of the success of of, of the operations. So became aware of that. Um, I had a buddy that ended up getting a job um, in the lab. Um, I met some of the people in the lab and, and within a year or two, I was able to, to get a job there. So at the time when I started, um, this was 2004, um, I had a master's degree in exercise physiology. And so I kind of entered the lab at at what I'd call, you know, a low to moderate level. One thing that I really liked, um, and I'm using the past tense because I'm not in the lab professionally anymore, um, but one thing I really liked about it is it was fairly horizontal. Unlike academia, it's maybe, you know, very vertical where you have, you know, professors and, and, and those with tenure, and then maybe you have junior faculty, and then you have some graduate students. We were much more horizontal. Um, and so... Within a few years of being there, even though I only had a master's degree, um, I was able to to kind of, I'll say, co-lead you know some of the research and take a, a leading role in, in some of the testing of the astronauts. I, I should also mention there are two main things we do there. We do research to develop um, exercise countermeasures um, for use in spaceflight, but then we also did all the pre- and post-flight physiologic testing of the astronauts meaning we did vo2 max tests we did muscle strength tests things of that nature so these were standard tests that were performed on every astronaut and if they were part of a research study they may be doing additional tests like muscle biopsies or um you know or an resting metabolic rate test or things that might be particular to a a specific investigation but there i went 2004 I, i i got in there and, and just really, really buried myself down in in learning all that was known and at the same time realizing quickly that there was very much that, that wasn't known. And so that was what, what our um as a lab, what our research focus was, was to to expand that expand that knowledge.
0: Fantastic. I'm I'm just really, really curious to ask this. Like so you've given us a bit of an idea when you said it's it's a very, very kind of a, a horizontal um structure to, to, to working there. At, what's it like to work for NASA in general?
1: So this, that's a great question. One, one thing I, I don't often think about it, and I think that's a good thing, the way here in the States, the way NASA works, they um, their, their workforce is divided into effectively into two groups. So they're what we call civil servants. These are formal federal employees. Their paycheck comes from the U.S. government, and they work for NASA. That comprises, I think, roughly 10% of the NASA workforce. The remaining 90% are what we call contractors. So these are, and, and I was a contractor. So these are people um, who work for a company that has bid to NASA, bid on a contract to say, you know, we will provide like the, the, the contractor that I worked for. Um, I believe I was there over the course of two 10-year contracts, and these are contracts that are valued at, at you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, um, if, if not a billion dollars. I can't remember the, the size of the contracts, but they're enormous. Con- Some of them are small, but this one particular one was enormous, to provide effectively the life science research. So it was our lab and much, much beyond that. Um, and then that that company is responsible for hiring the necessary workforce to to. To accomplish that contracted work, so on, a, on very much on the positive side, although I was I was not working for the federal government, I was working under the federal government, if you will, but nonetheless on site on, when you are on Johnson Space Center property, which is where our lab is, those those uh, delineations fairly well disappear, and, and I think that's a positive thing in, in terms of there wasn't um there wasn't a, a, a hierarchical structure. I mean it, it formally was there where where NASA the NASA personnel are really your your bosses. Um but they don't treat it that way because you're in, in general the, the NASA folks, some of them are um um scientists and well many of them are scientists, but um they're more managerial at this point. A lot of them are um and that's why they're NASA. And so more of the, I call it the the foot soldiers or the ground level work is being done by the contractors who are in fact the subject matter experts. So, you know, they're the ones that have been there five, 10, 20 years and know all there is to know about their specific area. Um, Great to work there.
0: uh, And this is going to sound like a, a, another kind of strange question, but obviously in academia, uh, at least here in the UK, um, and I know the situation is a bit different in the the States, getting funding for research is not the easiest thing in the world. Would it be too much of an assumption for me to say that with NASA, things are a lot better? And I know NASA has had...
1: Yeah, but I think that's a fair statement. So things are always changing. Um, When I arrived, and and, and I'll also say with, with a little bit of humor... I feel like at any given point in time over my now, I guess it's close to a 20 year career. Everyone's always talking about how good it used to be, you know, whether that was a year ago or five years ago. It, it always used to be better. And now it's really hard. And then, you know, a few years later, it's worse. You know, but yet we go on. Um, so w- when I arrived, um the, the the way much of our funding came from um came from within NASA. So for instance, I I alluded to the the medical testing that we did of the astronauts. So the VO2 max tests and the the muscle strength tests and the DEXA scans and things like this. NASA just had a budget to do those tests. We were the lab that did them. So you're funded to do that work. Now that's only a portion of your work um, for the research. A portion of it also was provided within NASA. Some of that was earmarked internal funds. That was I'll call it non-competitive, um, and then we also competed for both external grants that were just completely outside of NASA, and we also competed for open NASA grants because NASA does fund a lot of university researchers. So. I'd say I think I've listed three or four different money streams. Um so yes, it is it is I would say working in that lab, the the money strain is less than if you're a university researcher that if you sit in your office and you don't you know aggressively pursue funds, you're not gonna get any. Um at NASA you need to pursue funding, but it's I'd say it's representing a smaller portion of the total money that you need. So in effect, there's perhaps somewhat less pressure. The other thing that's interesting is as, so we're, we as scientists at NASA, we are very, very far downstream. If you think of the fact that NASA's, you know, high level stated objective is to, you know, to explore, you know, it's to go to the moon, it's to go to Mars, it's to build the International Space Station. And we are a teensy, tiny little support piece in that big mission. So as big shifts occur at the highest level, um, example being in 2011, we retired the, the space shuttle, which had flown for 30 years. So President Obama in, I believe it was 2009 or 10. No, actually, it may have been President Bush. I can't remember. Several years before that. 2007 or 8, um, it was declared, you know, the space shuttle program will end in the next several years. And it did in 2011. Um, and then President Obama began funding um, for the first time commercial space endeavors. So as all that's happening at the very highest level, that's changing priorities down at the, at the very local level for, for me as a scientist. And it changes the funding stream. So one one group Maybe kind of drying up, and they talking about within NASA, and they no longer have money to give us to do this project that would that would help their little world within NASA, but you know now this other huge program has grown up, and they 're flush with money, and you go talk to them, and oh yeah, we need you to do x, y, and Z projects to help us in our big you know new objectives so that's that 's kind of how funding goes there it's a bit different than than the university but you know at the same time you're you're identifying what the call it the hot topics are or the in this case the hot programs are and and you find a way to uh, uh to position yourself to help them
0: i might have to uh look into a a career with with NASA once i, I get this phd
1: <laughs> absolutely you it's could
0: not, it sounds a lot easier than it is in the uk at the moment um, so I, I want to kind of move on to to like the the real guts of, of what what we're here to speak about today. And you've already touched on it um, uh, kind of at the start when you were introducing uh, your your research. And I suppose the best way to, to get into it is: Why does NASA even need exercise physiologists and nutritionists? What are the issues or what are the problems presented by travel in space that require you know your job and require your research
1: yeah so um, from the earliest missions in in the 60s so this was um, Gemini and then Apollo um, short missions of days um, some of them pushing into two weeks um, guys were the astronauts would come back and and there were observable deficits in Muscle mass or muscle strength certainly, and, and I'm not a specialist at all in in neurologic changes, but I've been tangentially involved, and those are actually quite challenging. Um, you can imagine, you know, just briefly to say, you, you can imagine what happens, for instance, to your to your neurovestibular system, you know, your otolith organs when they're not loaded. You know, we take for granted that as I sit here still, that they are they are loaded constantly by gravity and when i turn my head you know that that fluid shifts and i know that you know i've I've turned my head um when you're in in space for for days weeks months um that fluid floats and the the brain being as plastic as it is um reprograms itself and all of a sudden it's not sensitive to those fluid changes and so I've, I've had crew members, astronauts tell me on returning, you know, they're, they're feeling great and they're maybe walking down the hall and going to turn left into their bedroom. And then they, they bump into the wall. They, they turned, you know, uh, a foot too early, a step too early because their equilibrium's off, you know, and their perception is off the, all these kinds of things. Um, skeletal, so skeletal muscle changes, um, there are metabolic changes in terms of, um, glucose tolerance, insulin sensitivity. Um, I mean, the, the truth is if you can, if you can identify a system or a, a facet of physiology, it's probably impacted, um, if not largely in, in a, in a small way by space flight. I mean, it, it's such a profound, um, alteration. And again, it, our only reference, well, our being the, all of us that, that haven't been to space, um, our only reference is living in this 1G environment. Um, I, I often tell my students um, that, you know, the gra- gravity, is it, it is the basis of, of physics as we know it. And, and I'll tell them physics always programs or pushes or affects physiology. And so, Almost everything that we take for granted about physiology is downstream or secondary to the physics, the biomechanics of living in a 1G environment. And as soon as you leave that for any any period of time, everything changes physiologically. Um, and we and we see it in, in you know, things like, you know, in small ways, we see it when you you put a cast on your leg. Um, we see it when you lie in bed for days or weeks, which, by the way, we use those as, as analog environments for, for research purposes. But you see it, you know, just if, if someone is uh, encounters disuse due to an injury or illness, you know, dramatic alteration in physiology and function.
0: So, if we look at the, this, basically, when people go, go into space, uh, where we're 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 no longer in our 1g environment, where you know, for all intents and purposes, we're you know we 're weightless um, or at least experiencing microgravity we don 't have this load on our body uh, anymore we don 't <laughs> uh, we don 't have this 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 force pushing down on our body that for- forces us to kind of exert some sort of forces with our muscles and that causes these effects on the musculoskeletal system, like you said uh, you mentioned some of those changes like for example in in um, blood glucose management and i imagine a lot of that has to do with you know that insulin sensitivity has to do with muscle disuse as well um and so i suppose one thing to 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 ask about that is how quickly does this happen like you you said that like you know some of the the even the shorter flights that are only a few days or a couple of weeks you can see these effects like what's what's the the extent of these these changes in in if we just speak about muscle mass for example, what's the extent of these changes and how quickly do they occur?
1: Yeah, so the the changes one one thing I'd say at the outset that I think is really important um, to to sort and that is measurable um, scientific changes I'm going to call them versus clinically significant or operationally significant. And what I mean by that is, is is take an average astronaut, um, that, that maybe is 45 or 50 years old. Um, and, and I'll just say a, a male that weighs 80 kilos and maybe has, you know, 17% body fat, you know, so this is a, a relatively fit individual with, with a reasonably high level of muscle mass, muscle strength, et cetera, et cetera. Um, This guy, he, he may lose, you know, a kilo of muscle in a, in a, in a, you know, a two week flight, or he might lose 500 grams, you know, something like that. Most of which will come from, from the legs because those are the, the muscles that are, if you think of experiencing the greatest delta in activity, you know, like we don't see a ton of, of loss of mass or strength in the upper body. Because, quite frankly, going to space is, is only a modest change for the upper body, unless you're maybe a very, very avid weightlifter. Um, who, this is now a very different experience. But for, for most of us, the big change is, is going to occur in the lower body, and, and we call it the postural muscles, so maybe the low back, um, the glute, or glutes, low back, um, maybe abdominals to some extent. Um, but you have these... Um, clinic excuse me you have these these um, scientifically significant losses but whether or not they actually manifest in in a in a uh, operationally relevant way is 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 another question and then i'll talk about that maybe a little bit later but yes whether we're doing um spaceflight studies or i mentioned bed rest which can happen you know in a, in a patient laying in bed but we also use that as a research environment where we put people in bed and we study them we sometimes for days sometimes for many many weeks and we and we look you know because we can exert a much higher level of control we've got to see them with our eyes and put our hands on them um, on a daily basis compared to a, an astronaut that's in space flight. but yes we can see significant so I'll say statistically significant changes um, compared to um, a control in, in very short periods of time. However, uh, I think it's important to emphasize that it, it's important to know whether or not these these losses are um are actually impairing the individual's ability to do their job. And I think that's a big a big balance point, you know, because we want in an ideal world, we would prevent all loss but that may not be possible um it may take too much time meaning like you have to exercise so much that it's it's ridiculous it's like we're not going to spend hours and hours a day exercising we've got a mission to do so how much loss is acceptable and and that's kind of more the pro the, the posture that we we tend to take
0: so based on what you've just said there why does you, you you've spoken about like you know what's clinically significant and then what's actually significant from a health perspective and from uh, in your in your words operationally? Um, why does that muscle loss even matter? What what's so important about it from a health perspective and also what, why would, would astronauts even need to have that muscle function um, in space or when they come back?
1: Absolutely, that's and that that is the. I think the core core question, so I'll try to organize my thoughts and 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 at the same time touch on several different directions so uh, one of the things I think of is in our role at the exercise physiology lab is we want to both protect the um uh, the mission objectives so make uh, enable the astronaut to successfully complete the mission, but we also have to have some long-term awareness for, for the health of that astronaut, you know, over the the subsequent decades of, of his or her life. Um, you know, most of them are, let's say are average around 50 years old when they're, when they're going on a mission. Um, so presumably they're going to live another 30 plus years, uh, beyond that. And in a good example, there would be uh, bone mineral density. So in the earliest days of space flight, um, in, in particular, uh, bone mineral density in the lumbar spine and in, um, in the hip, um, like the, the femoral neck, the greater trochanter, that area, um, we were seeing losses upwards of 1% of bone mineral density losses per month. So they would, they would do a six month mission and come back with 6% losses in bone mineral density, which is pretty significant. Now, obviously, if you began the mission, um, with, with very high bone mineral density, once again, that's perhaps not, not as concerning for you. But if you were already average or perhaps slightly below average in your bone mineral density and now you've lost 6%, you know, there's some concern there. Um, and we, we were seeing, um, it, it takes quite a while to regain that, unlike muscle that's perhaps much more plastic, uh, bone, is it takes longer to regrow, so we we have that kind of dual focus. Biggest concern is the immediate, you know, operational um, um, success, but we have to also at the same time be, you know, considerate of, of them as as human beings that we want them to to live a long, healthy life. Um, so I've touched on a couple of times. I've said I've mentioned, you know, your pre-flight status. And this is one of the big things that we really zeroed in on um, is, and, and I'll say, there, there are certainly standards for astronauts in terms of aerobic fitness, muscle strength, um, bone mineral density. However, and this may sound really strange, they are standards. But to my knowledge, and I've actually heard this said, Astronauts are not pulled from a flight due to not meeting those standards so for instance i'll give an example our our st- our standard um, in terms of vo two max aerobic capacity was that you needed to have a vo2 max of at least thirty two point nine milliliters per kilo per minute okay to fly and this came from looking at some of the metabolic cost of of doing a spacewalk or an EVA on the, on the international space station and what the metabolic cost of that was and what most people, um, the levels most people can sustain for a prolonged period of time. And so we did a bunch of, you know, a bunch of math and said, ah, you know, if if your VO2 max is, is roughly 33 mils per kilo per minute, you should be more than fine to accomplish, you know, a spacewalk, an EVA. However, we have certainly flown astronauts, whose VO2 max was below that. And I'll also add they were perfectly successful in in their in their um performance of their job. Um so this is this is where all of this kind of can rub and get sticky in terms of whether or not you know we, we don't want to it's I think this is maybe a distinctly American thing because I can compare it to our Russian counterparts. Um they treat their astronauts or they call them cosmonauts um i think much more um much more authoritatively that is to say they have some very rigid standards and and the cosmonaut is uh is lucky to be a cosmonaut and if he or she doesn't adhere to the program and the standards they'll probably find themselves not flying whereas in the states uh, i think it's it's much more of a it's viewed much more as you know NASA is investing in these in these astronauts and these crew members and you know we 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 want to, want them to meet these standards if they don't you know we're not going to not going to kick them off the flight now they could be they could be removed for for a for a, a you know a medical reason like you know they have they have some kind of you know astronauts have, have gotten injured you know literally like broken a bone or something like that and, and gotten scratched from a flight because they just could not safely and effectively perform it. Um, but that that whole you know bit that I just discussed, that is kind of a, a sensitive little fulcrum in my mind as a scientist is is that balance between you know kind of individual rights <laughs> as a as a crew member because because they they vary the the crew crew members astronauts they vary I mean from um, military personnel former military personnel males and females former athletes that are extremely fit that are extremely driven and they are going to exceed all of the um the the physiologic requirements that you would put on them and then there are others who are you know and i'm maybe being a little stereotypical but maybe who are scientists or who are um, educators or things like that. And there may be that just their, their history is less about, um, physical exercise and, and, and physical fitness. And so they kind of do, I don't want to say it negatively, but they kind of do the minimum. Um, and, and that leaves them a thinner margin, um, with which, from which to fall, let's say, as they, as they go into a space flight. Um, if I was, if I was the king of the world, it would be, get really really fit before flight and then when you leave we're going to be much less concerned about small to modest losses because you started out so high whereas if you leave clearly you know right on the margin of what we think is is necessary you know you're, you're you can't fall you can't lose much
0: and that's that's a really really good point uh, and, and something i just kind of want to want to touch on um Obviously, you've got these, these standards, and I'm saying that in, in inverted commas for, for what you would like, uh, an astronaut's fitness level and strength levels to be before they go, uh, not necessarily he, adhere to, but you're saying if you had your way, you'd get people as fit as possible. Is there evidence to suggest that those who have, for example, let's say a higher starting, um, body, um, let's say bone mineral density or a higher uh, starting, uh, muscle mass are going to end up physiologically in a better place at the end of a stay in space than somebody with lower levels?
1: Yes. So it's a great question. So interestingly, um, I, I, one of the papers we published, we actually showed, and this may sound, um, contra to the point you just made, but we actually showed that, that Astronauts who have, I believe this correlation was looking at muscle strength, as I recall. Astronauts who started stronger had greater percent losses in strength. Okay. And, and if you think about it, that I I believe that makes sense because you're, you're saying here I am on earth. I'm working out really hard. I have a very high level of muscle strength. I go to space. I'm floating around for, let's say, 22 plus hours a day no matter how hard I work out for an hour to two a day um, to try to maintain that strength it's probably not going to be as good as what I could do on earth and and so that person from a percentage standpoint actually loses more than the person and I've seen them do this I've seen some close to couch potato astronauts launch and they get to flight, and to their credit, they work out really hard when they're in flight. And they will actually, I've seen a few, actually gain strength in flight. But they did that because they started so low. It was like what we would expect to see a sedentary person that begins working out, and they have these remarkable percent increases in you know strength or muscle mass or aerobic fitness. Um, but... I think what's really important to to zoom out from that is absolute values. So that crew member who started very, very strong, and maybe they still sustained a a 20% loss in strength, which would be very high, but but we've seen it. They, They will still land, come back to earth at a higher, much higher level than that couch potato crew member who maybe had a 3% gain in strength during their their, their mission. And so that's why I, I think it's, and, and it's just not, not just me, I think there's an increased emphasis on pre-flight strength because you're probably gonna go down after, after your launch, once you once you get in space. Um, if you go up, that's, that means you started really, really low. You're probably gonna go down So it just stands to reason the higher up you can be within reason, you don't need to be an elite athlete, but if you can be, you know, well above average, then you're able to accept, um, modest losses from, from that level.
0: Um, So, so I, and I think that's, that's really, really important because, you you know, it's very, very easy to talk in relative terms. There, like, you know, somebody who's very, very strong is relatively going to lose more strength than somebody who's, you know, not strong at all can potentially gain. But I think the, when you put it into absolute terms, it does make a lot more sense for, for people to, to prehab, uh, before they go into space flight. Mm -hmm. Um, I I really want to move on to some of like the countermeasures that you use, but just before I do that, um, it's something to do with the actual importance of strength in space. Um, why would somebody, and let, let's say if we, if we we can think of two situations. One is uh, quite current and the other is more hypothetical. But if we talk about what would somebody need to do that would involve strength uh, or fitness uh, on the space station or immediately after they come back and land on Earth, and then the hypothetical, uh, hypothetical side of things, what would somebody need to do if we managed to make it to another uh, planet um, and people were doing something there. How are muscles going to be, and fitness going to be important for that situation or those situations?
1: Yeah. So we're obviously still on the space station. That is the current operational environment has been, we're coming right up on 20 years. I believe it was November of 2000 was when the space station began, uh, being, being, um, uh, crude. So we're, we're a few months shy of that. Um, Currently, to be quite honest, you don't need a lot of muscle strength, certainly to be on the space station. Um, Probably the most uh, demanding task that they do, I mentioned earlier, is a spacewalk. We call it EVA or extra vehicular activity. That's what EVA stands for. Um, These are very typically five to eight hour um, marathon endeavors. Usually it's a pair. Um, of astronauts that will, you know, don a spacesuit, egress, um, the station, um, they're tethered, and then they're spending, you know, the better part of a day, um, outside of the, of the station working on it in some way. The most demanding part of that is actually what they're doing with their hands. I've, I've put the gloves on before. Um, you can imagine trying to protect the astronaut you know from from the elements or the 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 environment that they're in um in terms of extreme heat, if the sun is on you and extreme cold if you're on the shade side um of the earth or the station, but still being able to work tools you know to to remove batteries and solar arrays and things like that um so. I'm, I'm told, and I can certainly appreciate it from my minutes in the glove, it's extremely fatiguing on your hands and your forearms in particular. Um, it's also fatiguing on, on your shoulders because the way the suit is designed, it doesn't allow you to articulate, the the, the suit shoulders do not articulate nearly as nicely as the human shoulder. Um, so you're kind of, I mean, you have, you have an exoskeleton on, you have a, you know, a a suit and you're having to, to truly, it's positive, it's pressurized. So you're truly having to work against it. That is, I would say, the 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 peak demand on on an astronaut currently on the space station. Um, so it's n- not to make light of of that, you know, relatively arduous day, but it, it's not super super hard, especially from a you know a max strength type of of, of standpoint. Now, coming back to Earth um currently uh, we've just landed our first commercial crew um who splashed down in the ocean um but uh, but i 'll say what what most crew members are still doing and that 's going up and down um on the russian vehicle the the Soyuz. Um they land in uh, the, the the steppe of Kazakhstan and when they land it um accurately then you have a, a full on um, uh, rescue crew that basically comes on them fairly quickly. And when, when, when everything goes well, they're, ex- they're physically extracting them from the capsule. So again, it's, it's fairly low demand. However, there have been at least a couple of flights, um, over the last few decades where that, um, that capsule landed far off target and the crew had to extract themselves, um, and, and perhaps didn't get rescued for a number of hours. Um, which depending on how you're feeling, um, when you get back, that could be no big deal or it can be a, a major deal, not, not like a survival sort of thing. But, um, you know, if you're feeling severe effects of, of, um, nausea, I mean, think about how you feel sometimes coming down on a bumpy flight, um, from say a transatlantic, um, jet trip. And now imagine you've made a ballistic entry you know, from, from space and smashed into the, into the earth. Um, and you're, you're not feeling so good. So all, I think it's also there to come back and say, it's really important to remember it's not just muscle strength, but you have this neurovestibular component. You have the cardiovascular component. You have the, the, the skeletal component. All of these things are rolling together um, to put the astronaut in the, in the shape that they're in at that given moment. So that's kind of the current that's that's what's happening now and, and and i'm I would freely admit that um you you don't have to be especially strong or fit to do that, especially in nominal consider or nominal cases um you you're probably hoping that you're a little further up the ladder if if things are a little bit off however, going to the future when you asked about you know future missions to moon and Mars, things change considerably because now. Let's go to the most extreme example. Let's go to Mars. So right now, the full mission to the space station is a six-month mission, okay, um, for, for the, average, the average crew. Going to Mars, you're going to have a six-month one-way transit to Mars. So you're going to get to Mars after six months in microgravity. Your exercise countermeasures will have been Performed in your in your crew capsule, which will be significantly smaller than the International Space Station, which is to say that your exercise hardware in that capsule will be much smaller um, than the exercise hardware that's on the International Space Station. And when you land on Mars, you're not going to have a welcoming committee. There's not going to be anybody to pull you out or help you in any way whatsoever and mars is is about three-eighths uh, the gravity of earth so you can look at that as a good thing or a bad thing the, the the good news is when you stay there you're getting some stimulation from uh you know physiologic stimulation from that gravitational environment partial gravity environment but when you arrive this is your first gravity you know that you've seen in six months and you're doing you you and your crewmates, let's say it's a crew of four, you're doing all of this work yourself. So you land, and now it's up to you to construct a habitat, um, to prepare your food, and at some point to begin um, conducting your mission, you know, whether that's geologic samples or setting up um, communication um towers to as as forward work. Um for your for your exploration as you begin traversing the planet um, it becomes all of all of what we call our, our plans our concept of operations is much more physiologically demanding um, because again you're on a planet with gravity now and b- and by the way the current suits um, we're probably still a good 15 or 20 years away from from Mars at, at a minimum but the current suits the weight, Of the suit, or I should say the mass of the suit, is, is going to be equivalent to the mass of the human in 1G, if that makes sense. So if you have an astronaut, you know, that weighs 80 kilos, um, he or she, when they don the suit, that of course is added mass, but now they have the three eighths gravity of Mars, they're going to come out at about Give or take a little bit, they're gonna come out at about the same eighty kilos of of effective um weight on Mars, which means it isn't gonna be easy. They're not just gonna be bouncing around um like on the moon where you have one sixth gravity um mars will be will be um much more challenging um in in that regard, so way back to your question you asked minutes ago um Physical fitness will be considerably more important, and um, I, I dare say essential, um, when you're on those those far um, deep exploration missions. Both because of the increased gravitational um, loading compared to the space station, and due to the to the remoteness and the austerity of, of the environment, where you you don't have any help.
0: I, I think that's that's really really eye opening when you think about it, uh, especially considering the the weight of the suit. If I was asking you, what what is the current weight of like a, a standard or an average spacesuit
1: at the moment? Oh, that's a good question. So, they they have a a launch and entry suit. So this is the suit that they would wear, well, when they launch and when they return. Those are relatively light, and I, I to I want to say they're probably in the 15 kilo, maybe 20 at most. Um, they're they're fairly light. The suit that they use to do uh, a spacewalk or an EVA on the space station, they're considerably heavier, but it doesn't matter because it's microgravity. Um, so um, maybe maybe going off of that, um, as I, as I said, it was uh, just a few weeks ago in in July we returned our first commercial crew was two, two astronauts um, that that launched in May and returned here in July. And they were launched by, by SpaceX um, on the, on their commercially developed uh, rocket and and capsule. And the significance of that beyond the fact that this is the first non NASA uh, non-governmental launch was the fact that it was a return to landing um, in the ocean. Um, there are a number of advantages for that um, and there's some some disadvantages as well. Um, we did a, a a good bit of testing here in in the Gulf of Mexico which is about uh 30 to 45 minutes from NASA Johnson Space Center. We went out there with a mock-up of the um of, of the capsule and and we practiced doing these these egresses of the crew and you know we i was along from a physiologic perspective to look at you know some the physiologic cost of that and not surprising so we did this um kind of in a worst case scenario we went out there in um in the middle of july this was a few years ago and in houston um mexico in the middle of july it is brutally hot and humid um, and you're wearing a suit now the suit has liquid cooling so it it is cooled but once you unplug your cooling from the capsule you know now you're now you're on borrowed time you're heating up quickly so we looked at heart rates and metabolic costs and such of of those crew members um exiting the, the capsule and and to kind of paint the picture the nominal um egress from that that capsule um is for um, a, a rescue crew, military rescue crew, to pull up in boats. And they put a kind of a, a they call it the porch. It's, it's basically a big flotation lip around the capsule. So they have something to stand on. And then um, they help f- literally physically, you know, pull these, these, these guys and, and gals out. Um, again, nominally, they're coming out the side hatch. But if the side hatch is jammed, then you have to take them out the top hatch, which is significantly more difficult. Um, so we practice that, what we call aided or assisted egress. And then we also have the crew members practice, you know, doing it themselves. Oops, you landed, you know, 250 kilometers off target and the ships and helicopters aren't going to be able to reach you for several hours. Maybe you have a fire in, in the, in the capsule and you've got to get out now. Um, and you've been in space for weeks or months and, and now it's, it's, it's time to get out fast, you know? So that's, that becomes all of a sudden a very physiologically demanding event. So, um, those, those are probably the two big areas that I outline. you know, is on an exploration mission being in that partial gravity, uh, environment on a terrestrial surface, becomes more demanding especially early in the mission when you've spent so much time in transit in microgravity once you presumably once you've been on that planet for a while you you've you've regained you know perhaps uh, much or all of it that you've lost and now you're you're habituated to that environment but then you get one more big kick when you when you come back to earth splash down in the ocean and and again if you have the misfortune of finding yourself in a in an off nominal, uh, contingent situation, and you're having to do, um, an emergency egress from that capsule, that's going to be very physiologically demanding.
0: So, so staying physically fit in in terms of cardiorespiratory fitness, staying physically strong is, or at least should be a, a priority for, for our astronauts, um, for a lot of different situations. So what are some of the countermeasures that NASA employs to make sure that, okay, let's say our, the, and if we talk right about now, that the astronauts who are currently in the uh, International Space Station are able to maintain muscle mass and muscle strength and, and bone mineral density? What can they do to, to retain that?
1: Sure. So, right now we have a, a pretty nice suite of exercise hardware. Um, we have a cycle we have a treadmill, and we have a resistance exercise device. Um, the the cycle ergometer is is still, I'd say, largely the, the original cycle ergometer. Um, that's a pretty simple device. Um, it doesn't require a whole lot of, of crazy engineering, but you can probably imagine um, with a treadmill and with a resistance exercise device um, that. There's there's some significant engineering challenges. I'll, I'll start with the treadmill. Um, the original first generation treadmill. Um, I, I can't recall what exactly what the peak velocity was, but it wasn't extremely high. Um, I feel like it was it was somewhere around maybe 16 kilometers an hour or something like that. And often due to um, to power issues. The, the peak velocity that the crew members were actually permitted to run at was even lower than that. Um, and, and, and think, think about programming exercise. Um, you might think, well, that's plenty fast, you know, for, for, for a steady run, but what if you're going to do an interval workout, you know, if you're going to do an interval workout and you have someone with a decent level of aerobic fitness, you know, you, you don't want your treadmill speed to be capped at, 12 or 14 kilometers an hour, you're, you're going to want to be able to get up to 16, 18, 20 kilometers an hour to, to be able to do, you know, some some good tough intervals for, for a fit individual. Um, so the, the current second generation treadmill has that. I, I believe peak velocity on it is is close to or, or at 20 kilometers an hour. Um, so you can, unless you're extremely, extremely fit, you can do some pretty pretty nice um high intensity intervals with that, with that speed. The individual, obviously, if you just put an astronaut on the space station on the deck of a treadmill and turned it on and said, run well, their first step, they would simply push themselves up off the deck and be floating around the cabin. So they wear they wear a harness and then they clip onto the deck surface of the treadmill um, using uh, Using bungee cords, um, so you can you can alter the the load, if you will, of, of the harness based on how many how many clips or how long that bungee cord is. So what they'll typically do is put on their harness, you know, clip in with the with the bungee cables, bungee cords, and then they'll stand on the deck of the treadmill. It's it's instrumented, so it has load um, uh, load cells in it or a force plate um, so that we can see okay how much how much do you weigh um, standing there on the treadmill um, because that's that's the load it, it well the loads going to be dynamic of course as they run it's going to go up and down but we want to see what's the static load with you just standing there with the harness on early in a mission subjects will start out at about 60% of body weight so let's say you're a hundred kilo um, crew member um, you're gonna maybe start out with with 60 kilograms of, of static load with you standing there on the, on the treadmill, which will go, as I said, it's going to go up and down as you, as you run and come off the treadmill, um, that loading, but that's your starting point. And then they'll work up to maybe 80, 85% of body weight. If you, you, you can run at a hundred percent of body weight, but the reality is it, it, it's somewhat uncomfortable because you're wearing all of that loading is coming through your shoulders and through your hips because the harness basically goes over your shoulders and, and then on your hips. So you can kind of see there, there's, there's a very obvious just engineering, uh, challenge of how, how do you, how do you load someone? You and I, when we go run, we're loaded in every cell of our body from, from the gravity around us. Um, whereas we're having to load them at, at specific points where that, where that harness is actually touching them. So that's the treadmill. Um, and then the last would be the, the resistance exercise device. Also on its uh, second generation, um, the first generation device, um, we use acronyms for everything. So the first generation device was called the Interim Resistance Exercise Device. That's IRED. Um, the current device is called ARED. It's the Advanced Resistive Exercise Device. So IRED, if if you remember uh, maybe 15, 20 years ago, there was a device um, that was called Bowflex, and they were pretty popular um, here in the states. I'm sure they they got around uh, around the the pond as well. But um, the the resistance was essentially it was an elastomer type resistance, like like a bow, you know, that, that that a bow would be made from. And you were you were generating the resistance by by bending or deflecting that that bow. Um, I read worked very similarly. It was an elastomer based resistance. Where as the lifter, whether they were standing up in a squat or they were pushing up in a, in a bench press or, you know, uh, pressing up in a, in a shoulder press, they were, they were stretching and deforming an elastomer, um, uh, little, little, uh, disc and stretching this elastic. And so it provided resistance. The shortcoming and I'm, I'm condensing about I don't know, ten or fifteen years of research, but the shortcoming of IRED was that if you think about the nature of an elastomer type resistance, there there's several several things lacking. One is that the force curve, so the force that that the muscle is going to to generate, is actually um, not not similar to that of, of a free weight. So use squat uh, squat as an example. Think of someone standing there fully, you know, fully upright with say a hundred kilos on their, on their shoulders, on their back, as they descend in the squat, it's, you know, and they're doing an eccentric contraction. Um, the, the actual force at the feet is actually going down a bit because you're, you're descending with that load. but at the very bottom of the squat, depending on the velocity that the individual's moving out, let's just say it's kind of a normal squat cadence. At the very bottom of the squat, there's going to be a, a pretty significant spike in force as you have to decelerate the load that's otherwise going to cram you down into the ground. You have to decelerate the load. You have to stop it and then reaccelerate it as you begin the ascent phase, as you begin standing back up. And then as you, you know, build momentum, raising that load up, the force at your, at your feet is actually going to, going to tail back off. And that was all with a constant load. So you got 100 kilos on your back, yet the forces you saw through your musculoskeletal system were actually rather dynamic. I read didn't do that. You're stretching a rubber band. So basically when it's um, when it's uh, slack, resistance is pretty low, and then the further you pull it out, the resistance just gets higher and higher and higher. Okay. And what we learned is that is not as effective for maintaining muscle mass and muscle strength as is a free weight, um, so we went to work with I say we um, we explained this to a bunch of of engineers um, at NASA, who you know smiled and nodded their head and and um, went to work building a device that would better mimic a free weight. Okay, but we we very much in the aerospace physiology world um and, and i think it's the same in, in in sport as well we think of free weights as the gold standard because that's what we do in in 1g is we have to move we have to move a mass um and and, and the the mass is constant but the acceleration is dependent on the, the lifter or the person moving it um, that's the, the 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 x factor so a red was built With vacuum has two large vacuum canisters. And if you look up A-RED on, on YouTube, you can see it, see it in action. But it's two large vacuum cylinders and there's a piston in each of the vacuum cylinders. And so when the lifter is, regardless of what, what lift they're doing, they're, they're essentially trying to push and pull that piston through a vacuum. That affords a constant resistance say well how do you change the resistance because the resistance in the vacuum is constant it is so through some cool engineering you're you're using what effectively is is a different length of lever arm so i can i can chain roll a dial on a red and i can give that lifter a longer lever arm so some mechanical advantage and then that means the load that they see is effectively less or i can shorten the lever arm and and you know move the fulcrum and now all of a sudden the the resistance they're experiencing from those same vacuum cylinders is greater okay so a red all of a sudden has much better um uh similarities uh um to a free weight and the other thing that they built into a red were inertial flywheels so i mentioned you know i kind of described as you're doing a squat you get these these um these force spikes. So it's not, unless you move really, really, really slow in a squat, you don't just see 100 kilos of force at, at your feet. If you're doing it in a normal cadence, you're going to see, you know, some higher forces and some lower forces um, throughout the range of motion. So the engineers put these high mass flywheels in line with the vacuum cylinders such that when the lifter lifts slowly the flywheel spin very slowly and when you get to the bottom of the squat for instance you 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 only have to slow down a very slowly moving flywheel and spin it back in the opposite direction if in contrast you're doing very rapid movement squats and you're dropping quickly and then trying to ascend really quickly those flywheels are going to spin up really fast and at the bottom of the squat you have to decelerate those spinning flywheels, stop them, and then re-accelerate them in the opposite direction. So we get a simulation of inertia, a simulation of the forces that, that result from, from difference, differences in movement velocity. So, so all those things really made ARED um, a better device.
0: So essentially with ARED, you're able to simulate explosive or more explosive movement patterns.
1: Yes. Yes. The other big thing with A-Red is that its peak load was double that of iRed. So with i IRED, i I-Red, um, its peak load was, these are in pounds, so I'll convert, convert them to kilos and it seems like an odd number, but it's 136 kilos. That was the peak load for i And you might think, well, that's, that's a pretty big load. But Remember you're weightless. So if I have a 90 kilo crew member and they're going to squat, the first 90 kilos of that load is just replacing body weight. So I've only got 46 kilos of, call it, added loading, which is really light for, for a strong person. So they were stuck in, in those early years doing very um, lightweight, high rep resistance training, which, as most of us know, that's that's not the best way to um, to build or maintain maximal strength. Whereas with A-RED, the load doubled. So our peak load on A-RED is two, 272 kilos. Um, and and that, that pretty well exceeds the, the maximum strength of, of all of our crew members. So they're able to lift at much heavier loads. Okay, you,
0: you, you managed to solve the issue of getting the extra loading in. What kind of movements can the, the astronauts actually perform while they're on the space station?
1: so quite quite a few and i i think that question maybe is is more towards the resistance exercise side obviously aerobically they can they can cycle and they can run or walk um and that but that's pretty much it those those two movements um, the russians i believe actually have a rowing ergometer uh, i believe but uh um, from the resistance exercise standpoint on a red i've you like the number is something like 20 exercises there's there's quite a quite a number of exercises they can do um again uh, since since we're only audio here um i can i can describe it but you be well served you know to go to the go to the internet and just search a red and you'll be able to see um some some good youtube videos um where, where actual crew members on station will demonstrate some of the different exercises but the the three core exercises that are done in some way, shape, or form at every workout are squat, heel raise, and deadlift. And you can probably see the, the features of those exercises are they're multi-joint, um, they're whole body, but with an emphasis on the the low body flash back. Um, because those, as I said earlier, those are the the primary mus- muscles that are um, affected in a negative way by spaceflight. flight. So crew members will do um, uh, the, the typical crew member lifts six days a week. Um, they will they will do um, an aerobic exercise bout and a resistance exercise bout six days a week. Some crew members will most crew members let's say will take that seventh day off. Um, the the really um, aficionados will work out every single day. Uh, maybe they'll do something casual and and watch a movie or maybe they actually turn it up a notch and do whatever the heck they want and go really hard, but, um, they'll use, um, and, and I, I'm saying they, I should give credit. Um, a group of, of, um, strength coaches, we call them ACERS, A F C R. They're astronaut strength and Con- strength conditioning and rehabilitation specialists. A S C R call them ACERS. Um, these guys and gals are strength coaches, athletic trainers, um, I think in the past, we've maybe had a physical therapist, um, that was in that role, but, but there are folks who, who on a day to day basis actually program their exercise. Um, they will use a vari- a variations of those three basic lifts. So with the squat, it could be, um, a basic back squat. It could be a front squat. It could be a split squat, um, For the deadlift, it could be a standard deadlift, a sumo deadlift, um, a Romanian deadlift. Heel raise is probably not a lot of variations to that. Maybe you can change the angle of your toes or the width of your stance. But um, those three exercises form the core of the program, and then they they build off of that. Um, Astronauts do uh, perform some upper body um, exercises as well, although those are you know much much less important i would say is is there 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 is much for just maintaining/giving slash giving some variety um in the program um, but that's that's kind of the the core of the program i i mentioned doing six days a week so we actually um just recently um not actually not recently it's coming out next week we have a paper coming out that's looking uh, we'll be reporting on a novel um exercise program um that, that we studied on the space station. Um so that's gonna publish in NPJ Microgravity, um which is an open access journal. So feel free to, to check that out and it's it's a kind of the latest um of a comparison between what I just described, which is this call it the standard um ISS exercise protocol versus um a, a novel interventional um exercise program that we just evaluated over the last well Over the last seven years, it was a long study. You don't get a you don't get a lot of throughput in terms of research subjects on this section.
0: (laughs) I can only imagine. Yeah, Um, that was going to be one of my questions, but I I I can imagine that like getting some real life examples and real life data is is not the easiest thing in the world. So it's it's really impressive. I I think it's it's very very impressive as well. Just how much thought is is going into the the health and well being and the exercise uh, that. You know, your athletes need to, to, you know, your athletes, your astronauts need to perform, but they, they do need to train like athletes because they're training six days a week, you know, um, which is absolutely amazing. Um, like Kirk, I, I, I could keep this conversation going all day. Like I've, I've mentioned to you, Ab, uh, because it is just fascinating to see how you're so involved in such a, a niche and novel area of exercise science um but to be able to see your results being used you know in real time is, is it must be absolutely amazing um just for anybody who who might wants to kind of follow up on your work or or follow more of what you do what's the best way to do that or to even get in contact with you
1: so probably the easiest way to get in contact with me is just just via email like i said i'm at the university of houston clear lake so if you search me kirk l english you search my name or include nasa or uhcl for the university you're going to find me my email address is really easy it's my last name english at uhcl.edu um, i am on twitter and, and instagram but honestly i really use those more to follow others i don't post a lot of, of content myself but yeah i'm always happy to to converse with people or, or send them papers or, or answer any questions i'd love 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 to do that
0: Uh, Kirk, I just want to say thank you so much for this absolutely fascinating conversation. Uh, Quite possibly one of the most interesting uh, podcasts that uh, I've had the pleasure of doing. Um, I want to wish you the best of success with your research career uh, um, from here. And I'll be very, very much looking forward to your paper that's coming out next week. Um, So I want to say thank you. And uh,
1: Absolutely. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Health Scientist Podcast. I really hope you've enjoyed and maybe even learned something from what we've spoken about today. And if you did, I'd love it if you could leave a rating or a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use. Or maybe even share a link on social media. In your Instagram stories, Facebook, Twitter, even LinkedIn. It really helps spread word of the podcast, which means I can continue to get great guests to speak about different topics in health, which means more content for you. It really means a huge amount to me personally too. If you ever want to watch one of the podcasts live or ask questions to any of the guests, you can do so by following me on Instagram at bmorenutrition. That's at b underscore more underscore nutrition. And I'd love to hear your comments and feedback about the podcast. So please comment on the podcast post or feel free to drop me a message directly. And if you ever have a suggestion for a guest that you'd like to hear, please do let me know. I'll be back soon with another podcast. See you then.